if you take an enormous and millennia old anchor uh, into human experience, desire, and formation out of, uh, if you if you move that, if you pull it up, well then you might find some people finding themselves be quite adrift. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Coke of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Advent off to a good start for you guys? Huh. I guess. Wow. I, Advent. Super penitential. Yeah. You know, I know it's... <laughs> Yeah, austere. I, yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah. I flagellate myself um, <laughs> in the mornings for Advent, uh, but no, it's it's. Well, you don't use that. You don't use the lectionary, though, right? So you probably just have like light and frilly readings for Advent instead of the, the apocalyptic. <laughs> no, we actually stop. Hell fire. We're, we do, <laughs> we're doing Acts. We're in the middle of a sermon series at Acts, but we stopped that for Advent, and so we're doing the Advent readings. I never took um, you for like a you know topical megachurch preacher like TED talks. <laughs> To, you know, like <laughs> 10, 10 ways for a happy, a happy Advent wedding, a marriage. That's uh, it was funny because we had with well, the lectionary, you might, you wouldn't know, but it has these, these graphic and apocalyptic texts about um, the end times, um, Jesus's um, prophecy. And I made a joke about, you know, just as the world is starting seeing it, um, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, like the church starts. It's like, it's beginning to look like the end of the world. Um, so it's like, welcome to, welcome to Advent, uh, kids. Uh, here's the hellfire and brimstone. Yeah. You know, look out. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you though, because you can tell us about your, so you don't make any any changes at all? You just keep your sermon series going from. No, he said he's. I said you didn't. You did not. Really, ah, you had. You had this assumption. I had my joke. I, I had my joke ready. Right. Was yeah, you had to say no. It was already. It was already loaded. I was just ready. It's like when a we had gun. when we're preaching through a book of the Bible, we stop during a major feast or I fast see. season and, and go to the RCO. Okay. Yeah. Now we. Now we. Well, that shows some real Anglican real wisdom. I think Church in North America lectionary. Right. Yeah, we're our our advent started off because we have finally and completely um, transferred from the seventy nine prayer book, which was being used here for a long time for all sorts of reasons, uh, not the least of which we thought we were going to have to um, move to a you know like a, a metal shed or something out of our building. But um, but we have fully embraced the whole ACNA prayer book and the lecture and all these things, and we did it kind of drips and drabs over the past couple of weeks just to kind of slowly ease people into it. Um, but this was the first Sunday and I told him we reserved the final and most difficult transition for the end, uh, which was the statement for the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And I kept warning them. I said, this is going to be tough. Like it's going to stick in your <laughs> stick in your throat. Some of you are going to resist this, but uh, here's how we go. And so there's still a smatterings of with thy spirit and, and also with you, but you know, that'll, that'll, uh, silence over time. But I was like, I can't force you to do it, but and this is what this is what we're where we're going so anyway well i can look forward to listening to uh your sermon matt and i get the next 45 minutes free to have um next. <laughs> <laughs> well yesterday as we record this on wednesday afternoon uh the u.s senate passed what's being called the respect for marriage act codifying the recognition of same-sex marriage across the country the vote was 61 to 36 and i learned this week 
that in 1996, when the Defense of Marriage Act passed the Senate, basically a bill saying the exact opposite of this one, the vote was 85 to 14. That was less than 30 years ago. So this week, the Orwellian-titled bill writes into law what the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision set the stage for in 2015. So guys, it seems like an opportune time to revisit the marriage question. What's the big deal about marriage? Why do we get so worked up about this institution? Well, I mean, of course, from a Christian perspective, the marriage is is uh, ultimately about the gospel. So you you you, uh, it's a picture of Christ and his love for the church, his bride, and the church and the church's uh, love for and submission to Christ. And so, any deviation from the male female model in marriage is a, is also a distortion of of that picture that God uh, God created at the begin at the beginning. Uh, but even like even just from a you know you're setting that aside, because I. I uh, we can argue for uh, marriage, the nature of marriage, just from this the nature of of humanity and how how and and, and the core building block of civilization that that it's been for the last well ever since human beings <laughs> began yeah. began. I mean the, the the historic significance of this uh, the the decision to redefine and actually abolish what what has been the building block of civilization is pretty. It's pretty amazing. And it goes it, it it goes hand in hand, of course, with with the the direction ideologically that that our nation has been going. And I, I include in that both the Democratic Party and the, the Republican Party, both uh, liberals and economic conservatives. The the ideological position is or, or the ideological movement is 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 trending toward this notion of. Uh, we've talked about it before. Expressive individualism that that uh, that a person is defined by and and identified by what that person feels he or she is um, within, and and so uh, that that's been codified now. <laughs> it's been codified, and 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 so everything else and everyone else around that individual has to change and conform to these things. And this, right now, this is the the, the law. Um, has to do with basically homosexual marriage, but that, it's not going to stop there. You know, Al Mohler said it very well in the in the um, the briefing this morning um, that once you once you give way on this, the, the redefinition, once you redefine marriage, there there's no there's no way to stop uh, any kind of pairing that can be imagined um, coming in the future. There's, there's what well, you've bought into the core of the ideology of the of the of, of of queer theory and so it's going to keep it's going to keep going in that direction it seems like the fundamental misunderstanding here is that people think that government created marriage and Mm -hmm. marriage other than the seven days of creation and rest is literally the first thing that was made way before governments i mean we read in genesis 2 that the man shall leave his father and mother before man ever had a father and mother. Like marriage is the first thing and governments and civilization have simply recognized the fundamental nature of marriage since the very beginning. That's the order of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, even in the president's statement, which I was, uh, which again, I'll reference this morning, but I pulled it up. 
He says that there, uh, with today, today's bipartisan Senate passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, the United States is on the brink of re reaffirming a fundamental truth. Now, that's a pretty heavy statement. So this is the fundamental truth. Love is love, and Americans should have the right to marry the person they love. I mean, you know, these are unserious people, I think is the word you you could use. This is this is a pandering, masquerading as as uh, political uh, maneuvering. And it's all to the end, which has been pointed out for decades, that that um, if you if you can take away the respect for marriage, the actual sort of with, with the with the binary, as we said, with the sort of the, the the natural law component to it, you know, male, female, and sort of the procreative nation notion of it, the the uh, parental rights function of it, you know, and, and all of the various permutations and ramifications of prioritizing, quote unquote, traditional marriage, or the only thing that actually is marriage. Well, then, when they, if you can erode that, well, then the the vacuum that is left in sort of the the natural authority sphere has to be supplanted by something, and that's going to be a larger government, um, a more powerful totalitarian state. It's going to be a devaluation of personal. Uh, rights and responsibilities and, and, and an elevation of political totalitarianism. And this is in the connection between the two has been seen since since the the well, the French Revolution, since this these sort of ideologies started taking hold. Um, I think, you know, even Ray Sutton, you know, the bishop of the Reformed Episcopal Church has a book called um, Who Owns the uh, who owns the family, the state, or who owns the children, the family or the state, and, you know, in, involved in that even question alone, are all of these ideas, like, because if you can redefine what marriage is, well, then you can redefine what a family is, you can redefine who parents are, you can redefine um, all of these various natural institutions that have been the bedrock of, of civilizations, as Matt pointed out, um, across the the Christian and non-Christian world, you know, I mean, even if you live in a, if, even if you live in a society that's, for instance, polygamous, that still has a, an understanding of the procreative nature of marriage of, you know, maybe it's plural marriage, but it certainly isn't love whoever you want. It is that there is a, um, there is a, a reason, a rhyme and a, a function of it. Um, now, of course, that's not the Christian version of it, but it still has a semblance to, and a connection with um, what we would say reality, you know, like ontological reality. And to think it's just the height of hubris to think that we can, with a stroke of a pen and some votes, uh, mock God. And it's just not going to, um, it's not going to go well. Uh, well that's the project, <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it though? I mean, that, that is the project, you know, the, the idea that uh, marriage is just a construct built to uphold certain values that, that are now passe. So they're, they're, we, it's, it's an artificial thing. So now that we're moving forward and, and doing away with those bourgeois values, we can we can do away with the bourgeois notion of marriage right. and, and recreate our own thing and construct the brave new world, which is, which is what's happening. It's interesting to see some of the Christian reaction to this. I mean, I, uh, maybe, maybe I should put scare, scare quotes around, <laughs> around, around the Christian As you are one to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, remember last week, I think David French came out with his defense of the thing, arguing that it provided for enough protection for Christians um, and Christian organizations uh, that we should go ahead and accept it as a kind of a prudential Compromise. I'm not sure that yeah, and the fact that he the fact yeah. that he thinks that even when they tied uh, interracial marriage to the same bill, 
is such is because we all know what happened to the people who wanted legal protections to deny, um, you know, interracial marriage. I mean, they they rightly were, um, you know, run out of town, you know, lost their tax. I mean, so they're they're equating those two in this bill. So how do these people think that they're not going to ultimately put a rejection of same sex marriage, not equally as appropriate as a rejection of interracial marriage? I mean, I, I just don't it seems it seems you know, it's like Neville, Neville Chamberlain levels of, of a naivete and, and, and cowardice. It's like, yeah, I mean, I forgot his name, but his, he apparently is a friend or on the same, on a podcast or something with Alistair Roberts, uh, Matthew Lee Anderson. Yeah. 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 Okay. I was reading, he also used that language about the, that it's, that it's a uh, prudential compromise and, and his idea is, well, you know, look, our culture is sliding in this direction. So let's grab as much, uh, let's grab as much as we can for religious freedom until we go off, uh, go off the edge. I mean, I, I, the, the, the level of pragmatism in that is, is fascinating to me. Does he have children? It's like, does he have, you know, uh, so the the Jake Medor, if I'm not sure I'm not pronouncing his name right, um, but he he writes for uh, he's one of the main writers at Mirror Orthodoxy against your courts. He's also kind of engaged with this idea of, of prudential compromise in, in a friendly manner. The problem is, I mean, once you do, once you once you decide you're going to do in that route, just try to grab what you can from from legislation. You have really given up the ship. You have already you have really said every man for himself. We're not going to fight to preserve marriage, not just for the sake of religious freedom or for Christian Christians to be able to do as we, we like, but also because they're the people who are engaging in this in this these types of marriage or have souls, and they're now being encouraged by the, this new law to destroy those souls and um, and wind up in everlasting kind of death. I mean, into so the so I'm sorry, the Christian can't make prudential compromises with that. You're saying that the civic legality of it can lull them into a false sense that they don't need to repent of it. Yeah. I mean, well, that, that, and I, look, I think um, in that article I mentioned by Jake Meader, he, he quotes Tolkien, who's taught, who talks about how the human, the Christian, Christian ethics aren't just kind of, aren't just to be ghettoized as, as kind of Christian ethics for Christians. Once you become a Christian, you have these ethics, but they're the good ethics. They're the, they're the good of every human being, right? So they're, they're, it's not just that God gave us these special rules for his special people. They, they are the good. Right. And, and so that means that they're good for everyone. Um, and so when right. we, when we compromise on those and say, and say that uh, we're just going to give up this particular ship and fight for our own rights in the midst of it, we're also saying um, I, I would, we don't care what happens to our neighbors. But that's profoundly, yeah, profoundly unloving to your neighbor. Paul says that yeah. in Romans 13, um, this past Sunday. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really, it's not just short-sighted. It seems to be willfully, not just ignorant, but, but there's a, there, there's a, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's disingenuous to the point where there, it's, there's like a, I don't know. I mean, it's just so hard for me to, to, to see how I don't want to overspeak, but, it, but it, I, mean, I don't want to I don't want to disparage them unnecessarily. But it's it's baffling to me because 
you know, I don't think it's an it's an accident that since 2015 in Obergefell, we have seen the proliferation of all of these various new identities, you know, and the children growing up in this new world where marriage is who you love. Well, you know, that um, that also who you love is is who you are, you know, and this sort of thing, like what you love is. And and there's with the governor off. And this was the argument that was made seven years ago. And they were, of course, seemed to be hysteric and and they were, um, you know, skies falling and it was all of this doom and gloom and slippery slope. And how did you possibly? But here we are seven years later and you have skyrocketing numbers of all of this confusion. And you say, well, it could be like was pointed out that if you take an enormous and millennia old anchor uh, into human experience, desire, and formation out of, uh, if you if you move that, or if you pull it up, well, then you might find some people finding themselves be quite adrift, you know, because at the very least you had, and no, no, of course, before I go back on that, you know, the problem wasn't, didn't start in 2015. I mean, I was reading books about the um, French Revolution, and interestingly enough, I got a Michael Jones called Monsters from the Id. I don't know if you read this. It's really quite interesting, but it, it's all about sort of like about the history of syphilis, which is interesting, which I then bought a book about the history of syphilis. <laughs> what he what he chronicles is the rise of horror, uh, horror films with the beginning with Frankenstein. He talks about uh, Mary Shelley. Well, Mary Shelley was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Percy Bysshe Shelley was enamored by all of the new freedoms that came from not believing in God, most notably the freedom to have sex with whoever you wanted, whenever you want, with as many people as you wanted. Well, uh, back then as now, that comes with no small cost to your health and your physical well-being. And so uh, thus entered the specter of uh, syphilis into the world at an unprecedented level that only up until then, like, uh, Navy men and army people had really dealt with, you know, well, this is all part of the book. But anyway, fast forward, you had this, this constant battle with syphilis and you had the constant battle with, with children because, you know, the natural fruit of fornication is disease and the natural fruit of, of, of regular copulation is a, a child. And so both of these are unwanted in the modern godless world. So we had the, the, then ramping up in the turn of the century with Margaret Sanger, you know, she has, and I have all these books because I was just fascinated by this intellectual history, but she started writing like the first uh, abortion um, pamphlets for women, you know, like poultices and, you know, uh, castor oils and all this stuff. Well, anyway, fast forward to the Episcopal Church being the first one in like the 1930s or 40s to not only normalize um, contraceptives, but also divorce. And so all of a sudden we have this eroding centuries ago of this concept of marriage that brought us all the way down to people like in the 80s and 90s, rightly saying that no fault divorce, for instance, is a joke. Christians who think that there's no fault, you know, well, let's just agree to disagree, shake hands and part ways. Um, that's not a respect for marriage, you know, and yet that was part of the water that the Respect for Marriage Act was uh, passed in. And so, it, again, when, when we look at this, we, we, are, we have been given the blessed opportunity to live at the end of this long, slow train wreck. And we are watching the, the, the full flowering now of what happens when you actually uh, take a society and you untether it from this, this all-important societal institution we call marriage. I mean, J.D. Unwin, another book called Sex and Culture, uh, was written in like 1936, um, I think, or something like this. It's a massive book, and Aaron Wren talks about it. I have it, but I, I have not been able to crack, I've cracked it, but I have not halfway through. But he actually chronicles how um, every single civilization that has 
that has attempted to do what we are in the process of doing has has fallen, like every single one. And so, you know, I mean, I guess that was um, not on the required reading list of the the intro to Congress. Uh, you know, the the new the new congressman coming in, but but we are um, we are operating at a very high hubristic sort of Icarus level uh, um, right now. And um, you know, Lord help us. I mean, it's it's really quite frightening. In, in from a worldly from a, in in a, in a physical uh, worldly sense, um, the Lord still reigns, but we are. Uh, Would you say this is evidence of, uh, of post millennial? <laughs> well, where where is the where is the key lock? What's happening? Or... See, oh, you, in order you, for a, you wound them up now. In order for a in order for a tree to bear fruit, it must first be pruned, man. And so <laughs> we are watching. Okay. We are watching the pruning. If you've ever deadheaded a rose bush, you know it looks like ah, it's all gone, okay. and yet the when the springtime comes so as the fig tree begins to show its uh so we are living in the hardened the hardened skin of the of the fig tree right now that's, but. that's very talented <laughs> <laughs> There's a, but i do think i mean i've been th- i've been fascinated by this for a long time ever since i read a book called um uh, how the Re- west really lost god by mary everstadt if you ever if you read she's a roman catholic uh, sociologist she's written a bunch of first things and she had this image of the double helix of the faith and the family and she talks about how it wasn't a chicken egg thing it was a both and it was that you know as you stopped having children or stopped getting married and then stopped having children well then your your understanding of yourself as the creature and all the various things you were supposed to learn through god's pedagogical creational reality reality um had been you don't learn it, you know, you don't learn. I mean, I mean, think about the the goods that marriage brings to an otherwise lost person, you know, like a man, you know, it, it organizes the sexual drive, you know, it's sort of, you have it, it's no longer aiming just at anyone, at anything, at any time. It, um, it baptizes the vocational reality because all of a sudden you, you, there's a reason for you to get up at, in the morning to go to work. You know, it, it gives you, domesticates you with respect to your own children, you know, like you, you don't want to leave them and, you know, protect them and guide and so on and so forth. And so it's without that, you have feral men, you have increasingly broken and disillusioned and, and angry women. You have the, the still the, the biological necessities that bring us to want to get together with each other. But as we've seen, I was talking to someone who's working on a college campus uh, this, just the other day, and they were saying that because this is so confusing, that basically, at least in his experience, the men and women on college campuses don't do anything until they're both like totally inebriated in some way, shape, or form. And then it's like a madhouse. But up until then, there was really no, that we don't have any rules, no ground rules, like no, nothing but this sort of vague idea of consent, which, you know, is increasing. It's like in, in college campuses, it's like 7,000, it's like the EU constitution. It's like 55,000 ways to the consent, whereas it used to be, or it should be, that there's only really one question about what, how far this is going to go, and that's um, only going to be on our wedding night, you know. And then the rest of it was was a was a dance and a game that sometimes people fell in, but nevertheless there was that safety and those boundaries and those expectations that have been totally removed, and we we're watching the the carnage as a result of that just um, all around us. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, I don't have daughters nearly as old as yours, Matt, but I'm terrified that, that, you know, I'm not terrified, but I'm, I'm going to be very aware of what we're raising our sons and daughters, the world that they're going to have to be able to navigate. Like Linda, like Linda, um, 
what's her name from the Terminator, Nick? You know, she's Amanda. coming back. That's right, coming back from the future to prepare Sarah you. Connor is who Sarah you Sarah Connor, coming back from the future to prepare you for the world you're going to face, kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't do as many pull-ups. Well, wouldn't some say that we're being awfully hypocritical? I mean, we've all read the alleged statistics, which we can talk about if you guys want to, that 50% of all marriages end in divorce and that those statistics are the same in Christianity as without. Since when has marriage actually been that sacred? Well, what is it that we're really trying to protect? Aren't we just as responsible for the breakdown of whatever marriage is as anybody else. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that stat. That well, it's not true. Actually, yes, well, I know it for a fact. And, and it's not in the church, right? I think, I think, there's a book. There's a book just before you by a woman named Shanti Fieldman. Feldman Fieldman. We're gonna have to append a lengthy bibliography to this. Podcast. I've just been doing. I've just been preparing for a class that I'm teaching, so I've, I'm kind of more bookish at the moment than I normally come prepared for. But there's a book called It's called The Good of Marriage by a sociologist, I believe, named Shanti Fieldman. I bought like a case of these, and I can't. Somewhere in my office, but because um, I give them to uh, pre-marriage counseling people, and so long story short, she was she was confused. Uh, she heard that stat, and as a good professor would, went and tried to find the the corroborating um, um, study. Well, it turns out it was on one study that was very flimsily put together, and you know it's such a salacious and wonderful claim that it had been studied cited like you know a billion times. Everyone knows it. But it was um, it was discredited by the actual academic um, establishment. So this sent her on a on a uh, search to find out what was really true, and she ended up writing a book called The Good of Marriage, and it really it digs into these stats, and it shows that you know contrary to that stat, if you actually define you know it's all about the def definition of terms. If you if you define a Christian as someone that identifies as of course I am because I'm not an atheist or I'm not, you know, a Buddhist or, or Jewish or something, well, then, you know, maybe that stat is right. I mean, namely, if you would define like, a, you know, like I'm, uh, of course, I'm Amer a Christian, I'm American or something. But if you actually dig into how often do they go, do they, do they own a Bible? Do they know a creed? You know, do they, can they, you know, and, and dig down? Well, then the people who evince what we would say an active living faith have, I forget the exact number, but it's not even close to 50%. It's like, you know, less than 10%. And I'm going to corroborate that next time I'll go find the book. But nevertheless, that's exactly like, like, for instance, we saw the decline of the evangelical church, right? Well, if you look at those statistics, it's like, well, sure, people that define themselves evangelical, they go to their mega church twice a year, and only when they have like a free giveaways or something. If you define yourself as an evangelical, Evangelical, then well sure maybe that's declining but if you define yourself as an evangelical who even knows where that word came from you know who knows who knows something of um how they would give a testimony and so on and so forth well then you see that that church is not only maintaining but in some segments it's actually growing i use these statistics all the time because this is you know we it, it is good news for the world if jesus is not ruling ruling they think um, because that means we can do whatever we want to do. And Jesus knew that doing whatever he wants to do is a life of condemnation, which is John 3, 17 and 18. And so he came not to further condemn it, but to redeem it. And so this is where if, if you know, the, the stats are one thing, but the, the lived human reality is another. And I think that's to your answer, Nick, you know, we're living it, we're seeing it from a, a grassroots gorilla level, uh, you know, like a gorilla church level, uh, door to door, it works, you know, yeah. marriages are saved, children are reared, uh, people are joyful, they suffer with, with, 
within contentment and peace. I mean, and so, you know, from a 60,000 foot level, I, I can't make significant judgments, but, but I can look at my local church in my own life and say, thanks be to God. I think also part of that criticism also comes from people who just don't understand what Christians believe about about divorce, uh, or maybe who have a half understanding or a half remembered understanding of what the Catholic Church teaches about about divorce. That there can't be divorce if there if a couple is married, there has been an element, and um, and then they look at the Protestant world and see that there are divorced uh, Christians largely because you know we would we would argue that there, that, that um, Jesus does provide the one reason, one basis for divorce, and that's uh, marital infidelity on the part of um, either either party in the marriage and paul provides another which is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse so in those two in those two those two cases divorce in the between christians is is permissible and then of course you can get into a lot of debates about remarriage but but at least i think protestants would agree that there are two uh, two reasons why the lord has given us or two bases for divorce the lord has given us and so I think just partly that that comes from misunderstanding of what Christians believe about the whole thing. I, if I personally, if I had my way, I would go back in time and uh, fight against no fault divorce laws being yes. um, being passed. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, the idea that you, I mean, you know, it's it's harder to get out of a um, cell phone contract than it is a marriage, <laughs> you know. And then of course, and then there's, there's another book. I mean, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I just checked. It's Shanti Feldhan. Shanti Feld. Uh, Felton, I don't know how she pronounces it, but anyway, you can go to her website. There's a ton of resources, but there's another book about, uh, it's called Primal Scream. And I think it's by, I forget who it's by, but anyway, it's about the child, the, 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 this 30 year, 30 plus year longitudinal study. It's like the longest, most comprehensive study that's been done about um, children of divorce. Right. And it's called Primal Scream. And it's basically saying that these children that were, you know, it's I'm all right, you're all right. You know, it's the 80s, like, you know, dad's secretary, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's going to be fine. Uh, well, it's not fine, you know, and there's like incredible uh, increases in pathologies and depression and all these various things. And of course, there's never a one to one correlation in causation about anything. You know, I mean, we're complex, complicated people, but that you could somehow argue a no fault divorce, particularly in the in the uh, in the instances of children, um, it's just a lie. I mean, I've actually counseled people before, and I and, and when they are considering divorce, like there, someone came to me once and said, "I've already, I've already put a down payment on an apartment. I just think, you know," and, and we were talking about it. I said, "Well, listen, you know, I can't stop you from doing anything, but I can tell you one thing without a doubt, and I've got a volume, a library to to prove you. Is you think in any way this is going to be beneficial for your children, you're lying to yourself and to them. So you can choose to love yourself." more than your children or because the statistics even show that unhappily married people that stay together and still have two parents in the home, even if you sleep in different bedrooms and things, still is preferable um, to uh, to divorce. And so, you know, these people that lie to themselves and then what happens is their children become their counselors and the children have to be like, well, mom is okay, daddy's okay. Like, of course I think her boyfriend is, is just as cool as dad, you know, all this stuff. And the children become the counselors. The parents have this deep sense of shame and unforgiveness, and it just perpetuates generation after generation, just like the Old Testament says, the sins of the fathers are, are, are visited upon the, the successive generations. And we have a message into that, which isn't, 
this is the best it can be, but it's, it's what Jesus says, repent and believe. And, and, you know, it's not with joy that you point out all these statistics, but it's, it's, it's in the hopes, like we always say that the doctor is not happy that there are a rise in, in a deadly virus, you know, but, but if you have a cure, well, then he at least has a, has a shingle out saying, you know, the doctor's in, and this is what we're purporting to the world that we are not the healer, but we have been given the revelation of the diagnosis and we know someone who can help you. And, and it's in all of these things, you know, I mean, I was talking about on, on Sunday, I think that the wave has crested with respect to the sexual um, sort of quote unquote revolution. And we're going to be seeing over the next 10, 20 years, the, the carnage, the people limping back from the battlefield, as it were, um, maimed and disfigured. Um, and we had to be prepared to help minister to them. You know, I mean, there's going to be some angry, there's going to be some, well, there already are these detransitioning people, you know, some angry young men and women who have been disfigured by their, their parents' ideology. There's been some, um, you know, women that had spent their 20s and 30s being essentially abused by this culture and, and gaslit to say that it was liberating and enlightening that are that are very hurt and wounded and we have to be prepared to not heap further coals of condemnation on them but to to welcome them and, and, and to see the healing i get choked up thinking about it but i have particular people in mind that, that you you know when you talk about these things and um and you know i i'm i'm grateful that we have a, a great physician and a merciful healer because there's a lot of pain out there as a result of this rejection of God that hopefully we'll get the the joy of watching the Lord restore. Well, I trust we will. In fact, you just wish it, it didn't have to happen in the first place. You know, it's like, didn't James Lindsay say that communism was um, a false ideology that would never last. It's just the intervening 60 years took like, were really, really destructive. And it's like the sexual revolution is a joke because that's entirely opposite of how God uh, intended us to live. It's empty, it's depraved, it's um, unhealthy. It's, ever, it's the opposite of everything good, which is why the devil loves it. But the wreckage of it can be very painful, even if we know it's wrong. And so we're, we're, we're hoping that, that it ends. We should probably talk about the religious liberty um, aspect of this and what what protections are art in this thing because yeah. you know it's, it, there were several amendments offered yesterday to try and beef up the protections by marco rubio and some others um, and those were all defeated there was an amendment that put forward to provide some um some protections but but i think we're now we're now past the point where the person who refuses to bake a cake for uh, a gay wedding can be safe uh, i think this legislation makes it so that the the that that's back in play it's christian institutions i think the church is still okay but christian institutions that are nonprofits are going to i can i can see with this bill a very distinct possibility or probability that they'll lose their tax exempt status yeah like um, adoption agencies like not yeah. putting, putting dot kids with 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 same-sex couples like, yeah and i can see, I mean, I can see look i mean the, the path is there to take away tax exemption status from churches i know that that, that that's the the hardest thing that would be the hardest thing that they do but the, the, the path is there because like you said earlier once you define uh sexual desire in terms of a, a minority like a race then uh, discrimination becomes something that the the, the it's in the state's interest to stop so so just like you you know the, the churches that were Segregated churches, lost our tax exempt status. We can expect, I think, in the future, our tax exempt status to be to be challenged. And yeah. I don't know that we'll win that game. That, that 
that battle. Yeah. The Obergefell language specifically references the goodwill and sincere faith of people who hold to what the court called traditional marriage, whereas this legislation reserves that language to people who are open to all different kinds of marriage. So it's no longer specifically singling out those who hold traditional views as people of good faith. It's now widening or not, not widening, but sort of not, not including them explicitly. We're bigots now because we're, we're, we are, we are on the level of the racists. Um, and, and that, that's going to carry con- legal consequences with it. It's going to carry already carries social consequences with it, with it but it's going to carry legal cons- consequences with it um, as time goes on financial too. Well, we've got a couple minutes left. Somebody close us out with some good news. <laughs> no, I think oh, it's well, great. I want to say I mean, something. Look, we've had, <laughs> we had the, the church. The, I mean, I, I don't. It's not great in the sense. It's terrible in the sense that of, of souls being endangered, of the culture being further seeking further into corruption and, and dissolution. That's that's all horrible. But for the church, it might. <laughs> This is a time of testing, and we know that when God puts the church through, through times of testing, it's always to purify and strengthen it. And, and so we can expect that people who have glommed on to the church um, because maybe in the distant past or not so distant past, it was a respectable thing to do to be a Christian or to go to St. Swithin's downtown. It, it, insofar as St. Swithin's holds the line on biblical, biblical, biblical sexual ethics, it's no, longer, uh, it's no longer acceptable. And so we're going to see all of the nominal folks leave our churches and that's not a bad thing. And we're going to see the, the people who are not nominal be tested and strengthened. And that's not a bad thing. So we can trust that the gates of hell never prevail over the church. And the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ loves us and is going to take care of us. It's as if, it's as if the church would get increasingly stronger and stronger down through the ages. Um, and so in so much so that the gates of hell themselves wouldn't prevail. It's see, interesting see, how that I'm works. I'm talking about pruning <laughs> and suffering and you're talking well, about... Well, I do think, I agree with you, Matt. And I think that, um, you know, I think that this is where we we are going to, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. And and I'm, I'm grateful for y'all's insight and your witness and courage but I think that, you know, it's, I do think it's going to get a little harder before it gets easier. Um, I don't, I think that it's going to be a, a generational reversal is what we're going to see because you had, and when we talk about this, even like with the youth ministry, when you had such a laughably thin from a sociological perspective uh, version of Christianity that was basically the, the, the norm across American evangelicalism, for lack of a better word. Um, then, of course, our LCMS friends and the REC guys and the people that were like, you know, going to church every other day um, pointed out, but to no avail. Well, we're seeing the, the lack of fruit from that come in. That being said, it's also, and so there's a lot of work to re- redone, but there are people picking up the challenge. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've shared with you all, I mean, I think my own life represents a little bit of that reversal from from what I expected Christianity to be when I was 20 to where it was when I was 40. I mean, it's like, you know, the old adage, like you used to say, come to my church, you don't have to change anything. And now it's now we're actually saying, well, actually be prepared to die. Like, you know, be prepared <laughs> to, to drop everything. Uh, all of your societal pretensions, all of your ideas about what, you know, worldly success looks like. It's almost as if we had this book that told us some of you were wise brothers. Some of you were, uh, you know, not many of you were noble birth. But I think the hope in the midst of all this is what I referenced before is that, 
we had seen this, you know, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, you know, stable marriages, you know, God honoring, open, forgiving uh, relationships, um, you know, fearful in the, in the awesome sense, sense of responsibility of husbands and wives and mothers and fathers, and then, and then instilling that in sons and daughters. It's not a perfect calculus because we're sinners, but we have more hope and more expectation and more confidence um, than, than, you know, the best written secular book on child rearing or, you know, 10, 100 ways to be happy or whatever the case may be. And we've seen it and we have a long and unbroken thread of uh, faithful witnesses that have gone ahead of us. And yes, there have been excesses and failures, but those are the exception, not the rule, because here we stand. You know, we, we stand in a church that has the solid biblical foundations, it has faithful leadership, it has resources that um, are at our disposal for the good of not just our people in our church, but of our communities, our nations, and our world. And so, you know, I, I have grown in my, my confident hope and in the midst of all this darkness. Um, and if anything, it's just my I feel more like a like a rescue boat after Pearl Harbor or something, you know, or like some like like driving around trying to drag people from the wreckage of their self wrought lives. And to the extent that we get to see that and participate that in that is is a great joy. And so I think that's the hope that we have is that you know the lost will be found, and you know the 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 railing uh, sociology student right now that's trying to to live like the prodigal uh, because that's the height of light and enlightenment they're going to come home you know and we're going to run to them you know we're going to see them and we're going to help help restore them so um, that's the hope so find a good church hang out with some people that are wrestling along these lines and and um, bat in the hatches <laughs> but but look look for the lost and the hurting because they're going to be coming back in droves um, and we are going to be prepared for them uh, with the balm of Gilead. Love is love doesn't mean anything, but God is love. And this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, the perfect sacrificial offering for our sins. That is the good news that we hang our hats on. Well, thank you guys. And thanks to you out there for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 